I have uh, had a week. Uh, I almost got hit by a car. I, uh, my computer uh, stopped working. I may or may not have spilt coffee all over it, but uh, <laughs> that happened. Uh, and uh, I'm really tired today because I went to the Seahawks game last night. So there's no real excuse. But, uh, but each day, I kid you not, everything, like something happened to me. And each day I woke up with this incredible expectation of what God is doing in this place. Amen? And I came and, I, and I'm ready and my heart is just ready to go. So I need you all to be with me, all right? All right, all right. Got to get some energy because I'm going on four hours sleep and lost my voice a little bit from the game. Even though it's preseason, I was yelling like it was regular season, all right? I am in a constant battle with myself. Uh, I would imagine most of you experience a similar struggle with this. Often, it feels like there is too much to think about and too much to figure out. Do you ever feel that way? Like there are these spinning plates, all right? You got the family plate and you got to keep that spinning. And then you have the friend plate. You have all the relationships, all the people in your life, all the church folk that you got to figure out, right? Then you got the career plate. You have the job plate. You have to keep that spinning. Then you have the, uh, do I have enough money plate? If you ever feel that way, I feel that a lot around this time. And my kids are getting older and no one told me they get more expensive as they get older. Amen. And so you're spinning this plate. And then you have the physical shape plate. Am I staying in physical shape? Then you have the emotional plate. Am I emotionally there? Then you have the spiritual plate. All right. And then you have the worried about the future plate. You have the being a good citizen and the government plate. And all these plates start to wobble. Do you ever feel that? And you're running around and you're just trying to spin all of them. And you're like barely hanging on. Now, one of the challenges with it is that it make, when you sit down and you think about all that's going on, for me at least, I get exhausted. I get exhausted and I get a little anxious. And, and what happens is we often stop and I, and I begin to try to make sense of everything. And I say, what's the most important thing in my life? And the challenge is, is that I think there's like this perfect Kurt. Like if I could just somehow solve all these things, that there's a perfect Kurt that would be peaceful and everyone would love me. Do you ever feel that way? Now here's the deal. They wobble. And as I dig into my brain, as I dig into all the stuff, my brain starts to feel like this. Does any of you ever feel like that? Like a ball of yarn that's knotted. And the challenge with it is that when you take this ball of yarn and you try to pull on one of the strings, it just knots everything else up. Does that mean? When we, on our own devices, when we try to figure it out, all we do is pull the knot and all the other knots get tighter. Can I get an amen? Does anybody's brain feel like this? My first ever visual aid, I never do them. Here's the deal. You feel exhausted and you feel like a failure if you keep spinning plates around, all right? And here's the good news. I'm the pastor and I struggle with it. Look to your left, look to your right. Those people probably struggle with it as well. But Jesus is going to give us clarity, all right? Jesus is going to give us some insights onto what our life will look like and we can stop trying to untie all these knots. Amen? Amen. Last week, I loved Marty's sermon. Uh, he talked about expectations. He talked about how Jesus breaks down expectations so we can really learn, 
so we can fully have what he has for us. He talked about clearing out the temple, and he talked about the, the religious leaders come and say, by what authority did you do these things? And he's like this, you need to get your expectations in right order because you're going to see this, that if you don't, you're going to miss what Jesus has for you. And now we're going to continue that same theme, all right? In this next session, we see that he's setting our priorities right to get the pressure off us. I love it. Jesus is helping us get our priorities right. And when we get our priorities right, the pressure begins to get off us. And sometimes I'm in a pressure cooker, it feels like. And Jesus is like, you're going to have to change your perspective, all right? So let's dig in. Mark 12. Remember, Mark, Jesus has just entered Jerusalem. He's entered Jerusalem as the king. He came in by riding a donkey, a little bit different, right? And the religious leaders are not going to like that. So they're going to get into some debates, all right? And he's going to get into uh, the religious leader's stuff a little bit. And the religious leaders do not like that. And the religious leaders are going to bring up the most controversial things that they can think of. So that's the model that they're going to do. They're going to bring up the hot topics that we will dig into why, but they're going to dig in the hot topics to see what the Lord has for them. And we see that the religious leaders are trapping or trying to trap Jesus. Now, I use this word intentionally. In the Greco-Roman world, all right, debate was important. You would want to win arguments. And why would you want to win arguments? Because that meant that you were superior to that person. Now, Jesus had just come in saying he's the Messiah, that he is the king. And so the religious leaders are going to combat it with argument. And they're going to say, we are going to be more superior than Jesus. But instead, Jesus is going to win because all he does is win. So Mark 12, 13 through 15. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth flattery there. It is right to pay the imperial is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we, okay? Now the first thing you have to understand here because you have to unpack these things. The Pharisees and the Herodians together are a really weird team. They are on opposite ends of the political spectrum. They did not work well together, all right? So these are two separate groups. The Pharisees are highly committed to Judaism, and they're fiercely opposed to anyone ruling over them. And so they would not really like Rome to be over them. Now, the Herodians were Jewish leaders who were a different political faction, but they backed Herod. And so they, the Herod held power through Rome, and so they were pro-Rome. So these are two groups coming together. This is how big of a threat Jesus was to power, okay? These two groups are coming together just to combat Jesus. And they ask a controversy and hot topic within the Jewish community, okay? This would have been super hot. I was trying to think of an equivalent. I don't know what it would be, but this was uh, uh, one of the things that was debated a lot. Should a good religious, uh, abiding religious person pay the poll tax. 
Now, everyone that was in the Roman Empire had to pay this tax, and it was a tax that was directly paid to the emperor. And what's interesting is that it was a subject, or it was proof that you were subject to Rome, okay? So it was this moment where you're saying, I am subject to Rome. And what's interesting is that it also the debate within the Pharisees in particular would be that it was idolatry, because the coin that you had to pay had the face of the emperor on him, all right? And so it's a trick question, because if he says no, then he's on team Pharisees, all right? And so the Herodians can label him and be like, this dude does not care about Rome, and he can actually, they could put him to the Roman government and say, listen, now if he said yes, he was team Herodians. And so Jesus responds, 12, 15, uh, 17, but Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. He asked for a silver coin, all right? He asked for a visual aid and he answered, the coin bears Caesar's image. It must be Caesar's, but it's a both and answer, not an either or, okay? And so what he's saying is on one level, he is saying there is a legitimate role of government. Like government has to serve in some capacity, okay? So he's saying this is a thing. But on the other side, he's saying, look, everything is ultimately God's anyway, okay? And he's gonna make sure that we understand that God is the ruler of all. And to God... Give to God all the things. Give to God everything, right? Now, interesting that the Pharisees and the Herodians use the word pay in verse 14, but Jesus responds with the word give. He's literally like, just give it back to him. Give it back to him. Return it. He's like, it's all God's anyway. And we have to understand this, that everything is God's. If we want to begin to untangle the mess Everything is God's. We have to have that perspective to understand that everything is God. There are things on earth that we have to do. There's just things, whether you like it or you don't, I do not love cleaning up the kitchen. But if, thank God for me, because if not, my kitchen would be a complete disaster. There are things that you just have to do. But, it, but within it, we have to recognize that everything is God's. What is offered to God was God's originally and God's anyhow. So what do we do with this text? Because this is one of those texts that is highly debated. I'm just going to be honest with you on this. There are knots that we have in our heads. Uh, 2023, as a Jesus follower, what you do with the government and 2024 elections coming up, it is a part of the tangled mess. It is anxiety-ridden. There is things that are just going on that are a mess. Let's just call it what it is. This is not a political statement. But rather what it's saying is that the whole you can't build your whole theology off this. I want to make sure that we know this. There are scriptures that you need to read as you think about the government as whole. Romans, if you want to take a picture, Romans 13, 1 through 7, 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17, Titus 3, 1 through 2. I encourage you to read these. All right. But I also encourage you to be engaged in the political system. It's exciting that we are Americans. We get to advocate. We get to vote. It's a privilege that we do that. 
do that, okay? Also pay your taxes, all right? Please. But at the same time, this is a priorities talk for Jesus. He's not making a big overarching statement of what you do with the government. He's saying, I'm giving you a different perspective on this thing. He's like, it's all God's. We live in a fallen world. You have to do some things, but remember that everything is God's. And so we live in full obedience. If we want to begin to untangle these knots, it's full obedience. Okay, here we go again. Mark 12, 18 through 27. Then the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him with a question. Note that they say there's no resurrection. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no children. It's the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you don't, do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels, like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Okay, so you had the Pharisees. You had the Herodians. And here we see a third group, the Sadducees. We have to learn all this, all right? Who loves learning these things, all right? If you don't know... So you, this really helps understand what's going on. They're, they're different. They were a, a part of a, they belonged to a priest, the priestly families, and they were the most conservative of them all. And they accepted only the written books of Moses, all right? So that, that was the only thing that they thought was authoritative. So none, uh, they rejected all the oral law, and they did not believe in the resurrection anyway. So when they say this, when there's a resurrection, they're saying it in tongue in cheek because they did not believe in the resurrection. So let's read on, let's see this, because we see that the question is more insincere. They thought having and raising children was the only way that, you're, that you lived on forever, okay? So this is why it was so important. They said no, none of them had kids, okay? And they didn't believe in angels or heavenly beings, okay? So the Sadducees present this long-winded, hypothetical situation to Jesus. There's a lot going on there. Now, at the root of the question is this practice of a brother of a de deceased man marrying his wife to keep her in the family and impregnating her to keep the name alive. This is serious stuff. Throw it up there, Deuteronomy 25. I'm not going to read this all because I have way too much scripture already. But if you want to dig into it, if a brother, if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of the brother-in-law. Okay. They keep going and going. Fast forward to uh, verse 10. Uh, uh, it says that that man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandled. So if you did not do that, then you actually get the name 
of the family of the unsandaled, all right? I do not know exactly. I didn't dig into what that exactly means. I've been called a lot worse, but apparently this was a bad thing, okay? They would not be the family of the unsandaled. Deuteronomy lays out how this was meant to work, but there's a twist. None of the deceased gave the woman a son. And so there's all this stuff that's going on. Now Jesus responds at such a higher level. And you probably heard a couple things that shot out at you. You're not be married or there won't be marriage in heaven and you're going to be like angels, all right? It's a lot to unpack there, all right? But what we see is that the Sadducees, he says, you don't get scripture and you don't understand the power of God. That's what he says to them. He's like, you do not get scripture and you do not get the power of God. If you are a religious leader like the Sadducees, who are the most conservative and debate is all that matters, it's a slap across the face when you say you do not get scriptures and you do not know the power of God. For the religious elite, this is a big deal. First, Jesus knew that they were, did not believe in the resurrected life. So he's going to respond and take it in here. He says there is a resurrected life. He doesn't even debate with them. He's like, when the resurrection happens, there is resurrected life, right? And he's going to say that there's eternal life. And he's going to say, listen, earthly relationships aren't even the same. Oh, this is weird, right? It says we will be like angels. Notice it didn't say that we will be angels, but we will be like angels. And it's this, that we will be different and the patterns of relationships will be different. In the resurrected life, hear this, we will be different and the patterns of relationship will be different. Notice he does not say that we will not recognize our loved ones or that our personality will not continue in the resurrected life. He suggests that we will be in this new state of being. Belief in the resurrection is central to what we believe. And I would make the case that an eternal perspective on life begins to unknot these as well. When we say, God, everything is yours. When we say there is a resurrected life and I want to have that perspective, it begins to untie the knots because we hold on to hope of the resurrection and we deal with the earthly stuff through the perspective of this new life, okay? Is everyone tracking with me? We focus on what really matters in the spiritual realm when everything in us wants to deal with the stuff on the earthly realm. We live in two different places. It's a weird thing to know, but when you are a believer, you're experiencing earthly stuff while knowing that the spiritual realm is real and active. Amen? Not all the earthly stuff is going to fade away. Paul unpacks it. I want, I, want to, I want to really dig into this a little bit because it helps help me at least. 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 54. Yes, we're going to read that whole thing. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. A little harsh there, Paul. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just as a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else, but God gives it a body as he determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh 
Animals have another, birds have another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly body, bodies is one kind and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. And star different from, differs from stars in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven, as was the earthly man. So are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have, been, have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. This is long, but hold on to it. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed for the perishable that must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality when the perishable has been closed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality then the saying that is written will come true death has been swallowed up in victory amen i will preach i'll just leave it at that i know it sounds crazy but paul is using an agricultural metaphor here. He explains that a person sows a seed. The seed must die and decompose before the plant can take root and grow. All right. So Paul is making the case. We are not crazy. All right. We are not crazy. Those who believe in resurrected life are not crazy. The, the human body can die and we can experience resurrected life afterwards. We see it everywhere in nature. We People think death is the end, but actually in the natural world, how things work, even outside of our body, it's just the beginning, okay? Think about it this way. The future body is like an oak tree, and right now we are experiencing an acorn. If I pull up an acorn to a little kid and I say, this is going to be that, the little kid's like, no way. And that's how most people view it, right? But that's how it happens. It goes into the ground, it dies, and it grows a seed that, or it becomes a seed that grows, begins to shoot and grows a huge tree. Now, why is this important? What happens in this current body is perishable, all right? Mine is perishable, yours is perishable. I wish I had better news on that, okay? In it, we are in the natural world. I am weak. I am natural. I'm aging before your eyes. From the beginning of this sermon, 
I have been decomposing since right now. <laughs> Think about this. This is true. This is not, not fit. When you hit, I'm almost 40, I'm experiencing this at an alarming rate. If I went and played basketball with the young guys today, I would tear both Achilles and I would be on in a wheelchair here next Sunday, right? I know my limits, all right? It's going to happen. I ache so bad. Meg and I went on a 10-mile hike this week. This week. And, uh, I am painfully sore today. How did this happen, right? Our bodies reflect the realities of a messed up here and now earth. So we take this balled up, balled up knot that we cannot figure out, and we take it and we begin to give it earthly or we begin to give it eternal perspective heavenly perspective of what's going to be like in the resurrected life and when you do it begins to lessen the pressure off you that jesus died and that he rose from the dead and paul says because that's true we now too can trust in the resurrected life and when things start to just go crazy around you which it will which it will again I lost my computer, almost got hit by a car, and I'm very tired today, okay? Heavenly perspective, because I have never been more ready for God to move than right now in this moment. Heavenly, eternal perspective. Paul makes it very simple. We, Jesus defeated death, so we defeat death too. Can I get an amen? Can I get an amen? Now, how does that change things? If we begin to live the resurrected life now, we don't live in fear, all right? We don't let confusion shape us because it is a confusing world. We do not let worry overcome our hope. We do not let anger take away our peace. What we do is we live the resurrected life and we show people the resurrected life. Everyone that we interact with, if you begin to live the resurrected life, like you are an acorn, that's going to be an oak tree, so we are going to go for it, right? And what happens is everyone begins to experience the resurrected life. All right, now there's one last, uh, last interaction that helps us get our brains around it. A, a single scribe that's been listening to Jesus comes, and he's the first one to kind of get it, all right? Mark 12, 28 through 30, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, Jesus answered, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Okay, behind this question, all right? It was a fact that, in the first century, there were 613 individual statues in the law. So the question sounds simple, but it's really not. He's actually saying out of all of these, which is the most important? This is no small task. And so there was this uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, and Jewish uh, families would have in the morning and at night had recited this together in their morning prayers, straight from it. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. So Jesus is saying, this you are getting so right. 
This is the most important. This is your first first priority priority to love God with the whole person. All right, break this down in the in the Hebrew thought. It says with your heart. The word here, heart, is the place where your will and your intellect meet. Okay, so with your will and with your intellect, love the Lord your God. And he says with your soul. Your soul for the Hebrews was this idea of where all your desires come from. Every one of your desires is first and foremost to love the Lord your God. This is why it was so important that they said this in the morning and the night because you have to will yourself to this, all right? And then it says your strength, understanding your spiritual strength and your mind, all that you understand, all of your understanding, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind. And the very nature of God is love. And so he gives the Jesus this, or give, Jesus gives the scribe a little bonus. The second, Mark 12, 31, the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Jesus is like extend your love from to God out to your neighbors. Loving God should naturally spill us out to our neighborhood, okay? Loving God should naturally spill us out to our neighborhood. And Jesus so brilliantly summarizes the whole law. He's like, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Mark 12, 32 through 33 says, well said, teacher, the man replied, you are right in saying that God is the one and there is no other but him to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. It's a very interesting line. And from then, on, from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Jesus tells a scribe that he's not far from the kingdom of God. If you want to know what the kingdom of God looks like, we talk about being kingdom first here at our church all the time, being kingdom mindset, right? This is what he is. He's like, this is how you live for the kingdom. These passages give so much clarity. When we preoccupy our lives with the things of the world, we get all worked up with work and career, with pointless dramas. Can I get an amen there? When we, can, when we try to control things or we try to control people, when we get worked up about politics and government too much that we can't even think straight, when we get all worked up on the things of this world, when all of our minds start to look like this, this big knot that everyone is trying to figure out and we can't because every time we pull a string, it gets worse. All of America is walking around with their brains looking like this. And Jesus gives clarity, all right? He gives clarity. He's like, untie all the knots. And there's a better way to look at things. Are you judging all that you're going through with how are you loving God and how are you loving people? It begins to make clarity with everything. You don't have to figure out everything. The world is broken. 
the, the, everything is a challenge right now. I totally get it. The world is a mess. There's so much political stuff going on. I totally get it. And, and it creates angst and worry and all that stuff. But Jesus is saying, everything's God. Start living like it. He's like, live with the eternal perspective of life. And stop worrying about all the stuff. Stop trying to untie knots that you can't. Instead, I'm looking to you. And I said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God. That's what I desire of you. And to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what I'm looking for. It's a challenge. I wish that I had it all figured out. It has helped me take some pressure off myself. I'm trying to figure out all this stuff. My kids are a little bit confusing as they turn into preteens. Again, no one told me how hard this was going to be. But preteens get a little bit more difficult. I heard teenagers are even worse. Everything is a, everything is a, a mind that's about to happen. You're about to walk on something. It's about to explode. Everything comes out of your mouth, seems to be debated by someone. And Jesus is saying, are you loving the Lord your God? And are you loving your neighbor as yourself? This is what I want you to measure everything by. It's not about worrying about career and money and all the junk of the world. I was, uh, I shared this a little bit, but uh, Abe and I were at a crosswalk and uh, this was Monday and we were at a crosswalk and uh, uh, you know, crosswalks are, you can't trust anybody anymore. And uh, there were, 10 cars that went past us. You know, we even had the flashing light on. We were doing everything right. And uh, a woman, this, this great woman, she stops at the crosswalk to let us through. And we start to walk. And a truck behind her just didn't even stop at all and hit her probably at like 35 miles per hour and drove her right through the crosswalk that we would have stood on. We weren't that close. Don't worry. It wasn't like, but it was close enough. And poor girl, there's a long story to that. But we, we, uh, we had a, a good talk with her, but um, it's moments like these that you realize that you're not going to be here forever anyway. And when you see Jesus walking on the earth, he cared so deeply about people experiencing and knowing the kingdom of God. Everything is measured on sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with people, teaching them how to love the Lord their God, and then we'll begin to love our neighbors as ourselves. And I'm telling you, you cannot legislate that. That's when the world begins to change, when we start to love the Lord our God with our whole hearts and to love our neighbors even more than ourselves. And Jesus is saying, this is what it is. Now we walk around when you don't have a near-death experience where someone's about to rock you through a crosswalk and it begins, the earth begins to feel like permanence. The earth and the things of the earth seem to be like it's yours to figure out. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. Everything is, is God's. You will be in a resurrected life. It's going to look completely different. And not only that, but here's what I desire from you. It's just two simple things. Wake up in the morning, and when you go to bed, make sure that you're loving the Lord your God throughout your whole day, and then loving your neighbor as yourself, because he's watching and he's saying, that's what I desire. And he says to the scribe, you now know what the kingdom of God is. Amen? I have the worship team come up. 
I'm so tired of my brain looking like this. And I know it won't ever look just like this. I mean, that'd be great. Some, my, you know, some people who talk to me would say, yeah, it's about right, one string of thought. <laughs> but internally, I feel like this. And for 39 years, I have been trying to untangle this myself. And I'm here to tell anybody that needs to hear this, you will not untangle this yourself. Matter of fact, every time that I do, I end up nodding more things and more people get mad at me. It's not yours. Yours is the focus on this, loving the Lord your God and loving your neighbor, loving your family, loving your friends, loving each other in the church. I'm telling you, loving people is not easy, but it brings so much peace and so much joy and so much purpose. So just bow your heads. I want to make sure, um, bow their head. I just want to make sure that there's anybody that needs to trust in the resurrected life. I felt that sense. There is a resurrected life. What you're experiencing today is not permanent. What you're experiencing today is a moment. And the only way to resurrected life is not untying these knots by yourself. The only way to the resurrected life is this. Jesus died on the cross for you and for me. And three days later, he rose from the dead and he is now live and active. And he is in the resurrection and the life. And through him, we reach eternal life. If you need that message, just pray with me. Heavenly Father, I believe in the resurrected life. I believe in Jesus. I believe that's only you who's the way, the truth, in the life that I can only, only reach eternal life through Jesus. Heavenly Father, for all of us who have believed for years, give us a new perspective of the resurrected life. Give us excitement for what's to come. Lord, help us to move past our fears and our worries and our insecurities and our need for control and all the things that we hold by saying there is a resurrected life. And Lord, for each family that's re represented here, for each person, I pray, Lord, that you would just be, that we would just set our hearts more on loving the Lord our God with all of our hearts all of our strength and all of our minds and all of our souls and that we would be known not as redeemed church not as some brand not as some uh just organization but people who love their neighbors so well that they understand what the kingdom of god looks like because i lord know that when I first got the taste of the kingdom, I know there's many people who have just come to faith here at Redeem and they have just tasted the kingdom of God and they are on fire for the kingdom of God. So I pray for everyone who's been believing for a long time, Lord, would you renew our passion for that, for the kingdom of God advancing in every aspect of our life, renewing us a fresh, 
fresh vision for our lives, renewing us the joy of our salvation. Because when we were saved, it was like everything changed. And then the earth and the world and all this stuff began to beat us down. And we became so anemic. And so, Lord, renewing us the joy of our salvation. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand and worship together.